0: And I do just want to mention this, and of course, and I mean this on a serious note, the the makeup of the congregation, you know, or the congregation in attendance is never the same uh, from one Sunday to the next, but um, I received somebody had put several questions pertaining to marriage and divorce in my mailbox, Um, but I, I really, I didn't understand exactly the nature of the question about divorce, so if that was you, I don't know who it was. If that was you, if if you could please clarify for me what exactly what you're asking, because I just didn't want to start talking um, without answering or attempting to answer the question. Or you can just come and see me privately. And I, I may mention this a couple of weeks. I, I the, the beginning, it's not the same uh, in attendance every week. I may take a couple of weeks and mention that in the in the chance that I'm not catching the person who wrote it. So I'm not trying to ignore the question. Um, I just want to make sure that I understand the question to endeavor to answer it. Genesis chapter 3 is where we are. And let's go ahead and pray. And we'll uh, turn our attention to the text. Father, thank you for your faithful word. And pray that we would be faithful people in Our study of it, our approach to it, reading of it, hearing it, and above all, knowing it with a view to obeying it. And so we pray that you would help us to that end. And I ask this, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, So I I think we probably are all, we're going to obviously read it, but I think we're probably all familiar enough uh, to know that Genesis 3 is the record of us, for us, of the fall of man and uh, <clears throat> what happened to Adam and Eve after they were created. <clears throat> um, and we're just taking some time in Sunday school to deal with, I'm calling it foundations, foundational issues, uh, things that impact us in very real and substantial ways. And so that is, uh, we're just kind of working our way through the first 11 chapters, uh, again, of the book of Genesis. Between Genesis 3 and Genesis 11, Um which I always found this to be a very, a very simple but helpful outline of the book of Genesis. Genesis 1 through 11, the history of the human race. Genesis 12 through 50, the history of the Hebrew race. And so there's, those are the two major divisions uh, within the book. There are a lot of structural markers. We will talk about them when we, when we approach them. But between Genesis 3 and Genesis 11, God records for us five distinct events. Um, they are the fall there are the story of Cain and Abel. They're the first eight chapter, eight verses of Genesis 6 that describe for us the sons of God and the daughters of men. There's the story of the flood, and there's the story of the Tower of Babel. And so those five events then constitute everything that brings us up to Abraham. We have the creation of man, the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, and then we go into these five stories. In each of those five stories, I'm just kind of introducing it by talking a little bit about the structure. In each of those five stories, whichever of them that you choose, um, there's a little bit of a similar format to them. God begins by telling us about a sin that that kind of triggered the whole thing. Um, And then God tells us about his notice of it, and his observation of that sin. This is what happened, this is what I saw, this is what I said. Uh, then there is some provision of grace. There is some dimension to the story in which God is going to put his saving grace on display and perpetuate the human race in spite of its sinfulness. But then there is also in each of the five stories a judgment and a a pronunciation of judgment. So that would, again, be true of the Tower of Babel. It would be true of the story of the flood. Um, It would be true of the sons of God and the daughters of men, which, um uh, as far as I know right now, will be our Sunday school portion on January 1st. We'll deal with Genesis 6, 1 through 8. And it's true of Cain and Abel, and it's true, of course, this morning of the fall of man. So there is... The sin that brings it about, God's observation and commentary upon it, some provision of grace, and some dimension of judgment. We're going to spend a couple of weeks talking about the fall. Um, and this morning, our, I, I'm going to just really deal with the cause of the fall and, and how it developed. And then next week, my intention is that we will talk about the consequences. Of the fall, there there are a series of events that come. If you want to turn, and I'd ask you to turn to Genesis chapter three, but if you will actually turn, look back at Genesis two twenty five, and I want to begin our reading there. Now, or I'm sorry, Genesis two twenty five. I should take my own advice. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. And I hid myself. And he said, Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? The man said, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. And I'm going to stop our reading there, right? Beginning in verse number 14, God then begins to introduce, excuse me, he begins to introduce the consequences of their sin. But here are the factors that contribute to it. Here is God's explanation of how it comes about. And I I want to be careful here because I am not in any way trying to question um, or undermine or undercut the account. I just want us to note this about the account. It is not simply being told in prose. In other words, we don't just have this kind of simple statement of fact boom 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 we also have in conjunction with the simple statement of fact we have some very carefully worded imagery that is being used and again these are this is and what i'm talking about is the concept of being naked which is a very which is a physical thing when you read in when we read in genesis 225 that they are naked and not ashamed Right? I think that we are obligated to take that at face value, that Adam and Eve are physically unclothed. And this is a description of their state. But, but it, is, it is also an image in our minds. It is not just simply a prose comment. When, when we read that, we can conjure up that imagery um, and I'm far from, a, from an expert in Hebrew. I'm just going to try and point this, this out to us. right? So we have the word naked. Naked, of course, to us has its own sound and its own way of speaking. But the word naked in Hebrew is very similar in sound to the word subtle in Genesis 3.1. And in fact, they are just derivative words there in other words there is there is in the hebrew nuance there is a reflection of nudity in the word subtlety and so we're god is he's not playing with words but he is he is conveying a message to us not only again through the simple recitation of facts and there is a factual dimension to this this happened this happened this happened and this happened. There is an imagery that is going along there. And, and, and by the way, I think this is an interesting question. And, and we return to it in the text. We don't want to miss it. Right in Genesis chapter 2 and verse number 25. And I'm not trying to be prurient or graphic or coarse or vulgar. But, um, okay, but on the other hand, the Bible is a very realistic book. And it talks to us like we are adults. Genesis 2.25. They were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Who was there to be ashamed in front of? There was nobody else in the world besides Adam and Eve. And again, I'm not trying to be vulgar, folks, but we need to understand that it's not like Adam and Eve are standing on a street corner in downtown Omaha, not wearing any clothes. It's just Adam and it's just Eve, they are husband and wife. So who is there for them to be ashamed in front of? And I would argue to you that that becomes very important because their shame doesn't end at the realization, right? There is, and, and usually when, when we talk about Genesis 2.25 in kind of a theological perspective, we talk about this as being the age Or if you're a hardcore dispensationalist, which I would not be that hardcore, this would be the dispensation of innocence. Right? They are are naked and they're not ashamed because there is some way in which they do not really understand what it means to be in that condition. But that is where the story begins. The, The story of their fall really begins with this kind of imagery being presented to you. Here is Adam and Eve standing in the Garden of Eden, and they're not wearing any clothes. They are naked. But there is another one in the Garden who in his own way is naked. And that is the serpent. The serpent was more subtle. And again, a play on the word naked. When the Bible uses that word, this is one of the few places that it uses the word naked or subtle. When the Bible is trying to describe it in a negative light, okay, our translators most often use the word crafty. So so, right, if if right, we, we would use the word subtlety in kind of a neutral sense. Right, We would describe something, the, the, these colors are very subtle, or the message was very subtle, very understated. But if we called somebody crafty, that's not a flattering word. On the other hand, when the Hebrew wants to use the same word in a positive light, it calls it prudent. And it's a good thing to be prudent. Right? And Jesus kind of deals with those same kind of concepts, right? We are to be Wise as serpents and yet harmless as doves. We are to be prudent but not crafty, even though prudent and crafty are different sides to the same coin. Satan here is prudent. And, and one translator argues that, that his is a similar type of nakedness that is modified by his sinfulness. That is where his subtlety lies. Adam and Eve are naked and completely innocent. Satan is naked, but he's up to something. And he knows what he's doing, even though Adam and Eve do not. And he is, of course, the most subtle of all the things that God has created. And, of course, we know that he will go on to become embodied in the snake. And, and again, more imagery that continues on. Until this day. So we have Adam and Eve. Whose innocence is represented in their nakedness. And we have Satan whose sinfulness. Is reflected in his own dimension of nakedness. He is up to something. And so we have this account. And then I just want to return to this in verse number 7 right because this is this is kind of the imagery that is set before us. We have a completely innocent couple, and how do we know that they are completely and totally innocent? well God innocent God tells us that they're undressed. and we have a serpent who is up to something, and he is equally exposed, and so then upon their And he said, I heard thy voice, excuse me, in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And again, the, the story is told factually. I'm not calling any of the facts into question. I'm not allegorizing Adam and Eve in any way. But, folks, it's worth noting that Adam's response wasn't, I'm hiding because I disobeyed. I'm hiding because you told me not to do this and I did it anyway and I was hoping not to have this conversation. So the very idea of being exposed then becomes one of the mechanisms through which God tells the story of the fall of Adam and Eve. They were innocent, but Satan was not innocent. He was just as exposed in what he was doing They did not see it. God did. Had they trusted the Lord, they would not have need to get caught up in one who is naked in his craftiness. They did not. Now they are in this condition. They are still naked and they are troubled by it because they realize where they stand, not only before each other, but before the Lord. Um, Which, you know, this is not really my intention, <clears throat> but folks, right? If if we didn't if we didn't get any other takeaway from the Garden of Eden, which there are lots of takeaways, right? But but the fact that human beings almost without exception cover themselves with clothing and are suspicious of new public nakedness. All goes back to the Garden of Eden so so not only is it given in fact and is it powerful imagery or imagery, it is powerful imagery, and it's not just imagery that the Bible uses <clears throat> I mean the the Bible then follows that trajectory of being clothed it it dictates the clothing, particularly the clothing of women, but to some extent. The clothing of men, and it comments upon the shamefulness of being naked and so the Bible carries that but but so do so do cultures right and and the more a departed a culture is from the Lord, the more comfortable it comes with the absence of clothing so that that's a very real dimension to it but again, it is far from the only dimension to it right so let's so let's go back on here, right? So, so the scenario that we have, without getting into to this point, to the mechanics of what happened, we will return to that, right? But, but the reality is, is that from that moment, Genesis 3, 7 through 9, is being played out in the world on a daily basis by the vast majority of human beings. They're playing some cat and mouse game with God. And in the Western world, one of the greatest ways of hiding from him is simply denying his presence. If there isn't a God, then there really isn't anything to worry about apart from our own set of agreed-upon standards. And that's the world that we inhabit. And by the way, some people will set those standards, and if they're the people holding the political power you will go along with those standards or else. So that's the world in which we find ourselves. This temptation by Satan is an attack upon God's created order of authority. It's an attack at a number of levels, folks. We'll get to this. It's certainly an attack on God's word. It is an attack on God's goodness. It's an attack on God's reliability. But he begins by Satan undermining God's created order of authority within a home. He went to the woman first. And please do not allow yourself to ever speculate on where Adam was or what Adam was doing because Genesis 3.6 is very clear. He was right there with her. standing as the silent partner through all of this he is he is folks in a very real way from the very beginning sacrificing his authority and re- refusing to accept responsibility for his role as leader in this marriage And what God does, by the way, right? Adam and Eve are a couple. And the prediction about them right in Genesis 3.24 is that husbands and wives will be one flesh. And husbands and wives are one flesh and they have a one flesh relationship. But they are dealt with when it comes to their sinfulness on an individual basis. They they are each individually involved, and they are each individually addressed. So, there, right? Ad, ad, <clears throat> Adam does not; Adam cannot bear the responsibility for Eve, and Eve cannot and does not bear the responsibility for Adam. And we'll see in a little bit that this that God God makes this argument. Right? I'm not inventing something. They are both involved in the transgression, folks. The temptation by Satan, right? He undercuts the authority in the home by making his appeal directly to Eve. He undercuts the authority of the scriptures through his conversation with Eve. Back to Genesis chapter 3. Now, the verse number one, Now the certain was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. Um, <clears throat> I don't remember exactly, that. did credit, but I think it was D.A. Carson who used these three words to describe this conversation. Satan began by exaggerating the Bible. Did God say, Verse number one: Ye shall not eat of every tree. Which has the idea of God denying them all the trees. You can't eat of what's there. The implication is that God is holding out on them, and He's going to get right to that, and we'll talk a little bit about that. Right the. This is the great denial is that God is withholding something good from Adam and Eve. He has made them, placed them in the Garden of Eden, which I assume you know, but if you don't mean the Garden of Pleasure. The Garden of Eden was to be a delightful place. They were to be, they were. it was going to be a delightful marriage between two wonderful people. And this was God's intent. And Satan comes in and went, God's holding out. And he is... A position in a position of exaggeration. Eve's response is flat out <clears throat> deception. We have exaggeration and we have deception. And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. That is not what God said. Right. Did God say you can't eat? No, God didn't say we couldn't eat. God said we could eat it all. But there's one tree God said you can't eat it, neither can you touch it. And Let me just read to you. You may have it easy access there, but the Lord God commanded the man, Genesis 2.16, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. Now, we could have the existential conversation about why anybody would want to touch it and not eat it, but the command was, don't eat it. There it is. It's the tree in the middle of the garden. It is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You may not eat the fruit of that tree. And again, folks, we could have all kinds of conversations about why God made that tree, but God made that tree for his purposes so that he might bring about the perfect man, the Lord Jesus Christ, to redeem man, and he did this, in some way it appears, right? I mean, it is clear from Ephesians 3 that he did this to make a point to the fallen angels. How that all transpired prior to that event, we do not know. And that brings us to Genesis 3, 4, and 5, right? The Bible is both, it is exaggerated. It is stretched to something it did not say. It is dealt with deceptively. It makes a claim that it does not make. And ultimately then in verses 4 and 5, The serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die, for God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Contradiction. The first doctrine that is contradicted in the Bible is the doctrine of Judgment. Genesis 2.17, if the day you eat, you die. Genesis 3, 4, and 5, you will not die. You will not die. And what Satan claims then is that God is the one who is lying. Satan's claim is that God is the one who is being deceptive. Remember, he is the most naked of the creatures that God has made crafty and his logic goes like this verse number 5 for god doth know that in the day ye eat thereof then your eyes shall be opened and ye shall be as god's knowing good and evil and and right <clears throat> and i want to take just a minute folks and and talk about that <clears throat> what what is being argued in the text what does it mean to know good and evil or we could right i mean let's just let's just pretend for a moment that all of the bible that we have in other words that all of the knowledge of god that you have is what you have to this point in the scriptures what does that mean what does it mean to know good and evil God has already told them what they can and cannot do. Very simply, eat it all. Right? It's all here for you, except the fruit that grows on that tree. You can't eat that. And I just think, I'm not trying to play with the words, but I think that we need to understand what is at stake here. What is at stake is not being able, we're not talking about the distinction between right and wrong. The distinction of right and wrong exists in the garden before sin exists in the garden. It is right to eat all the fruit. It is wrong to eat that fruit. That's not not what we're talking about here. I would suggest you need to go back to Genesis chapter 1. To get... To the the Genesis 3 point of the story, folks, the only idea that we have to develop what it means to know what good and evil is is to go back to the creation account and listen to God speak. That is good. That is good. Those things are good. Folks, and that's what we're seeing in our world and that's what we want. It's not about whether something is right or wrong. We don't want that. We want the ability to declare something right or to declare something wrong. We want that power. It's it's not about knowing which one is which. It's It's not the difference, folks, between knowing the difference between the color black, which I know is not a color, and the color white, which I know is not a color. That's not what Satan was offering that's not what he was suggesting god is holding out he was saying god is holding away from you the right to call black white if you want to or white black there's where there's where god is being unreasonable so it's again folks it's 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 a lot more powerful and a lot more complex than simply having all of these options in the world and being able to, you know, we had a guy, this was 30 years ago, you know, one of those, uh, I don't know if he was well-intentioned, but, you know, that was back in my, my rabid, brainless days. And, you know, he came in and talked about how smart Adam was because Adam could tell the difference between a giraffe and an elephant. And I'm just going, even in those days, that is... That is not what is happening in Genesis 1 and 2. Adam is looking at an elephant and he's going, I'm going to call that an elephant. God goes, good, you have the right to call that that. It's going to be an elephant because that's what you picked. Not like he was some toddler opening the little door on the game. Is that a sheep or a cow? What does a cow say? But the power to look at something and to define it, that's what that is. And ultimately, it is the power to define what right actually is and the right to define what evil actually is. Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil. That's the pure work of Satan. So Satan's argument to Eve is that God is withholding this good ability from them. And folks, anytime, I don't care what it is, I don't don't care how well-intentioned we are, anytime God has put a label on something that it is good or bad, and we come to the text of Scripture or that position and go, but it's not really so, all we're doing is revisiting Genesis 3. Same old conflict repeated all the time. What did God say? Well, he didn't really say that, and he most certainly didn't really mean it when he did knowing good and evil. And of course, Eve then, her reaction and her actions end up in disaster. Verse number six, when the woman, and again, you'll notice that God to this point, right? Again, if all that we have, folks, are Genesis chapter three, who's to blame for the sin? If all you had, folks, was Genesis chapter 3, you wouldn't even know there was a man at this point in the story. It's all the woman. And the words are distinctly feminine. It's not mankind, and our translators were misogynists, so they called it the woman. It is the woman. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise. Right? Because when you eat the fruit of that tree, the power will become yours to declare what is good and evil. Right? So she saw that the fruit was good for food. It was tasty to eat. And it was pleasant to the eyes. It was appealing to look at. and that it was desire to make one wise, the fruit was beneficial. In other words, this was something really to want. Do you think that's right where she sinned? Oh man, does that, does that work exactly right where she sinned? In other words, did she sin? I think that there has to be, although I'm going to argue that it is something you'd have to calculate with the best stopwatch in the world, but right certainly her brain consented to it before she reached for it so i think i think i think the sin resides internally before it shows up in her actions but but it is possible that the sin occurred at the word saw right cuz because that's the word that's bringing all of her faculties and perceptions into the picture rick Well that's a great that's a great question too right I mean is that is her misrepresentation of God's word where the where the fall is she she certainly she certainly misquoted him Don't ask me hard questions folks this is this is hard enough to work through this stuff without <clears throat> I I don't know I I just don't know I would have to give that some thought and go back to see if my sources talk about that at this point in time folks i would point out to you right because we've had again factual information i'm not in any way denying that or trying to call that into question but we've had factual information presented to us rather visually i was going to say graphically but that's not really good rather visually right this idea of being unclothed and satan in his own way unclothed right not physically unclothed he's just a serpent but He's, he's up to something and, and that's being exposed. But at this point in time, folks, in verse number six, right, the, the Hebrew just kind of the prose just kind of takes over and you have this crushing statement effect, she took, she ate, she gave, he ate. right Much as if you recall when we talked about the story of David and, and Bathsheba, the, the, the Hebrew grammar just gives you the facts quickly and factually. He saw her, he wanted her, he took her. And here it is the same kind of thing. She saw, she, she took, she, she saw, she took, she ate, she gave, and he ate. Just boom, 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 boom. So, in some sense, to go back, right? Because it's already been broached. Is the beginning of the sin when she misrepresents God's word? And the question, right, if, if we're not asking it, folks, out loud, it ought to be in the back of our minds. We know from Genesis 3.6 that Adam is there. Why has he not interrupted? Why has he not pushed the pause button and said to Eve, wait, 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 sweetie. That's, that's not quite what God said. Not sure what's going on here, but let's just everybody take a breath and let's talk through this, right? He, he doesn't do any of that. So whether the sin is actually with her misrepresenting the word, whether it occurs momentarily before she takes the fruit, whether it occurs when she actually takes the fruit, I guess I would say that Genesis 3.7 describes for us, right? The moment of the fall. The eyes of them both were open. They knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. Right? Everything stops. Clothing must be obtained. Into hiding we go. <clears throat> and you'll notice right now, having both eaten, the eyes of both are opened. And having been promised the knowledge of good and evil, the ability to declare something good and the ability to declare something evil, their immediate knowledge is not good and evil. Their immediate knowledge is more nakedness. So again, the story is told factually but very visually. That here is, right, we have this now we have this problem. We were promised blessing what we have is a problem. And we, pro- we solved that problem by clothing ourselves and hiding from God. Now let's fast forward to 1 Timothy chapter 2. Now let's start in verse number 12. Paul writes, But I suffer not a woman. I do not permit a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. And we've, we've talked about that. There's a nuance to the word silence. It doesn't mean never allowed to speak, but it is reflective of the relationship of authority. Why is this? Verse number 13, For Adam was first formed, and then Eve. Right? And creation order always becomes a part of God's logic. Verse number 14, And Adam was not deceived. All right? Now, it takes us a long time in Bible history to have that stated that clearly. Clearly. But folks understand that what is going on in Genesis chapter 3 this conversation between Eve and the serpent this nuance right which is something that we're really very much attracted to right we we like to take these kinds of issues and argue that they're very complicated and nuanced and you've got to bring in culture and you've got to bring in this and you got to bring in that and it's not as cut and dried as you might seem to think that it is there are all kinds of portions you know Eve's going through all this but, but understand something folks Adam knows from the very beginning of the conversation Adam understands clearly what he's doing Adam knows that Satan is lying And if Adam knows that Satan is lying, then he knows that Eve is being duped. And if Adam is not deceived, then he knows that his wife is misrepresenting the Scriptures. And we could argue, well, she's not doing it maliciously. No, but she's playing into Satan's hand. He's making an appeal to her that God is holding out, and she's using the Scripture to point out that maybe, in fact, he is holding out. So that what you have folks, right, what you have to go back to first Timothy chapter two, Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression, so we can never say, and then of course, you have verse fifteen, which I mean I, I, I again, I worked through this a while back I, I think the point that is simply being made there is that she is she is the she is the cause and the source physically of the perpetuation of the human race and so that is her role it is not the primary role this is again this is something that seems very demeaning to many people in american culture but she is not 1st timothy 2:12 by creation to be the leader she is by virtue of creation 1st timothy 2:15 her primary role is to be the parent to be to be the singular human being, through whom humanity will survive. So, right and there, right and we made this. We make you know we I, we made this point, right? The scripture makes this point when it when it comes to the creation of Adam and Eve that in order for there to be human being number three, the the male is going to have to make a contribution and the female is going to have to make a contribution. And that's been the way that it's been ever since the Garden of Eden. But we all know this, folks, equally well, that that there really isn't a, there really isn't a substitute for the womb. We have all kinds of scientific ways to impregnate women without the physical act. But you really need a womb. To nurture that child. This is the way that God has created the world. I don't want to to bog down into that. My point is simply this, folks, right? In verse number 14, okay, everybody's in the transgression. When God says to Eve, What'd you do? and she said, I got duped. God doesn't say, Well, then, this has nothing to do with you. I'm sorry that you got deceived. It's unfortunate that you met an opponent who was more competent and more crafty than you. Eve is in the transgression. Eve is sinful, equally sinful in her own way and in her own right. But Adam not being deceived, there is a sense, folks, in which two things. Number one, by virtue of his male leadership, he is the responsible party, and by virtue of his knowledge of the truth, he is the rebel. Eve can make the case. Look, I was deceived. And God goes, You were deceived, but you were you were in the transgression. Adam was in no way deceived. He just I mean, in effect, Adam said, Here's God in the Bible, and here's my wife. And boy, is she wrong, but I pick her anyway. And this is one of the reasons, folks, that in Romans 5.12, Wherefore, as by one man, the male, sin entered into the world, death by sin. So death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. The, the sin is transmitted through the seed of the man. So they are both <clears throat> participants. Now, we could make again, we could make the case, what should Eve have done? She should have looked to her husband for leadership, right? I mean, let's just fast forward the extension. What are we? We're the bride of Christ. He is the second Adam. What are we supposed to do? Look to our husband for guidance. He, what does he have? He has the word of God. He doesn't twist it. He doesn't alter it. He doesn't rewrite it. He doesn't edit it. And he doesn't lie when he tells it. We're just simply to trust him. This is part of our responsibility. <clears throat> uh, Jesus, of course, is again, and I didn't. we're not trying to develop all this at this point in time, but he is the second Adam. He is the recoverer and the restorer of what is broken through Adam. So, okay. Adam should have communicated God's words clearly. He should have stood by his his God, even at the expense of his wife, which he did not. Jesus Christ, in divine, miraculous, salvation fashion, was faithful to his father and faithful to his wife, and successful in accomplishing both through his substitutionary death. Um, <clears throat> And and just to wind this down, folks, I, n- I need to close, right? We, this is this is the foundation of all sin. Right? This is the first sin. It is in some ways representative of all sin. It is a mistrust of God and His Word. It is the the relocation of the authority to claim right and wrong into our lives instead of leaving it with God as it should have been. Um, and if we will not understand that all human beings are truly fallen, that they don't believe God, that they do believe Satan, that they do wish for the authority right and wrong to reside with them, and that filters into the things they do, the things they believe, the cultures that they have, right? Fundamental to any understanding of humanity is a recognition of fallen man. You know, folks... One of the beauties, if I can just say this in close, one of the beauties of our founding fathers, many of whom, no matter how much we try, were not born-again believers. But one of the beauties of our founding fathers was they understood fallen nature. One of the disasters of our modern political system is that it does not. It does not understand the fundamentals of fallen human nature. And way too often, the church doesn't understand the fundamental dimensions of fallen human nature to their detriment. Okay, going to stop there. And... uh